Welcome to Just Us and the Climate, a podcast by the Climate Justice Coalition, where we bring climate change back down to earth and show how it's not only a crisis, but an opportunity to build a better and more just world. Welcome to another episode of Just Us and the Climate. I'm your host today, Alex Lenferner, the elected General Secretary of the Climate Justice Coalition and a postdoctoral research fellow at Nelson Mandela University. Today, we are diving into one of the biggest questions surrounding South Africa's energy and climate crisis. How do we ensure a just energy transition for the people of Mpumalanga, which is the province most heavily dependent on coal for its economy and its livelihoods? To put some numbers to it, Mpumalanga accounts for about 80% of all of South Africa's coal production and 76% of all electricity. That's generated primarily from 12 major coal-fired stations. That's 12 out of the 18 in the country, so they host most of the coal-fired power stations. That level of dependence on coal is even more extreme in Malakhleni, which literally means the place of coal. Malakhleni produces 50% of South Africa's energy and hosts 60 to 70% of the country's 80,000 coal miners, right? But I think many people of Pumalanga probably have a, a love-hate relationship with coal. While it brings jobs and economic opportunities, it also brings devastating air, water, and soil pollution, making it one of the most polluted places on Earth. Coal also drives economic path dependency, pushing out other economic activities. Um, Pumalanga has one of the worst unemployment rates in the country, with about half the population unemployed and half in poverty. Meanwhile, dangerous and sometimes violent coal mafias reign over much of the coal industry. Looking forward, Mpumalanga's relationship to coal is set to change as the world moves away from coal, and their aging coal plants are increasingly due for retirement. Um, Many of them were built in the 60s and the 80s, and so they're reaching the end of their lifespan, and are also being closed as part of South Africa's just energy transition to move to renewables. So... On one hand, this move away from coal provides an opportunity to reimagine Mpumalanga's economy um, as maybe part of a more socially and ecologically just renewable energy-powered future. But on the other hand, those dependent on coal are worried about what the transition means for them. So to discuss the challenges and opportunities in Mpumalanga's just energy transition, I'm joined by two reporters who just finished a three-part series exploring the on-the-ground realities of the energy transition in South Africa. And it was produced by Oxpackers Investigative Environmental Journalism and Climate Home News with the support of the Pulitzer Center. So the two journalists we have today are Andiswa Matikinka, who is an award-winning journalist who joined Oxpackers in September 2018. And she manages Oxpackers' extractives digital tool called Mine Alert. Um, she's a graduate from Rhodes University, where she majored in journalism, media studies, and sociology, and has some interesting experience working on, on journalism as a researcher and reporter for Viewfinder, an accountability journalism unit. Next up is Tabo Molelekwa, who is an award-winning health and environmental journalist with a focus on climate change and renewable energy, food security, nutrition, and HIV-AIDS in South Africa. He is a graduate of the Oxbecker's Power Tracker training program and continues to report on green energy projects for their Power Tracker project. He's also the EU Citizen Journalism Fellowship Coordinator at the Heinrich Bull Foundation. 
Good to have you both with us. So I'm going to start with just a, a little question for both of you. I'm curious to see what got you interested or passionate about reporting on climate and energy. What is it that drew you to this work? What gives it meaning for you? So maybe, Andisa, we can start with you. Because I'm quite a young journalist, as some like to call us in the industry, I'd say that it was possibly a matter of fate and being at the right place at the right time and perhaps taking a chance on myself because I was um, a fresh graduate at the time, no experience, no real idea of where I really wanted to land within the journalism and media space. Um, But what I did know at the time uh, was that I had always wanted to do journalism that matters and journalism that has an impact. So when Oxpec has gave me that opportunity as an intern back in 2018, I basically ran with it and never looked back. And mm. this is the result of that. Nice. Yeah. And I think journalism that matters in terms of impacts on people's lives and the energy and the climate crisis are having major impacts. So that, that makes sense. How about you, Tabo? What, uh, what is it that got you interested or passionate about reporting on the climate and energy space? So, yeah, um, thanks for having us today. During my years of uh, reporting, I've been reporting more on uh, stories that uh, touched down on the communities, like from back in the days when I was a, a health reporter. Mm-hmm. And when um, Oxpeckers gave me a chance to actually uh, report on on climate and um, taking into consideration that this is the a hot topic now, but which I would say it's actually underreported and um, lack of awareness and education in our communities. I was like, uh, as a journalist, I think it is my job to actually uh, be the bridge or convey the message of awareness and education into our communities because they are actually in the dark. They, um, when you talk climate into black communities, that's actually uh, some kind of a jargon. And, um, when we talk energy transition, we are actually somehow frustrating and confusing them more. So it, that, that's why I became interested in this. I was like, no, let me take this opportunity and try as much as I can with the information that I will get mm-hmm. to actually uh, educate our people and bring that awareness and show them what is right and actually highlight them what is actually the misinformation because most or what I've discovered is that in our communities there's a lot of uh, climate and energy misinformation but then I think I will discuss <clears throat> more about that into detail as we go on so that is what drew me to climate and energy reporting to actually educate our people in the communities. Yeah, that's really interesting. Thanks, Tabo. I think the the level of misinformation that we have is, is really, really worrisome. And so the importance of, you know, explaining these really important issues to, to communities and to ensuring that, you know, people are not left behind and don't understand these big issues affecting them is vital. And so that's part of why I'm so excited to have both of you on this podcast, because you're trying to do the work of, of telling stories about the climate and energy crisis in a way that helps people understand them and in a way that helps them connect to these issues. Um, and so maybe to, to start this podcast, we can start at a sort of a basic level, um, a run of the terms that I think is thrown around a lot, but uh, not necessarily everybody understands when we're thinking about climate and energy, is this idea of a just energy transition. 
And so maybe either one of you could explain maybe what you understand by a just energy transition. Maybe what does it mean for the people of Mpumalanga that you've been speaking to in your three-part series investigating the, the transition there? And maybe have your own views and understandings of the just transition changed since you've been doing this investigation and speaking to people on the ground. Either one of you are okay. welcome to, to chime in on this if you want, you can. Okay, I'll start, but uh, I think Tabo might want to take this one as he's done a lot of work with the community and people on the ground to actually um, understand what they understand about a just transition and what it actually looks like for them. So um, I guess I'd go into the textbook definition of the transition being that of moving from greenhouse emitting um, industries to greener industries that have lower or zero emissions that are going to help us to reach um, um, net zero carbon emissions by 2050. And then with the word just, it it basically means that we're leaving no one behind and um, every member of the energy value chain benefits and is not disadvantaged by this transition. So we're looking at corporates, we're looking at workers, we're looking at communities, and we're also looking at the environment and how it will be affected by this transition. And then to go into your second question uh, about my own views and understandings, I'd say that my views haven't necessarily changed mm-hmm but they've definitely been enhanced in the sense that I now feel that, or I now understand that there is more to this just justness than we see and discuss on paper and policy and what uh, people expect it to look like for them on the ground. It's more than just consultations, um, but people want to feel like they're part of the conversations and the transition as it's happening in real time and, and not just being strung along with no clear plans for their livelihoods that are communicated. So I think I now understand better that it's it's not going to ha- the justness isn't going to happen in conference conferences and and boardrooms, but it needs to happen by bringing people's voices into the conversation, acknowledging their concerns because they're real and they matter, and also perhaps putting into action some of what they see as solutions that will work for them on the ground. Thank you, Andy. So, yeah, that really important point about ensuring the just transition is not just something that's discussed in air-conditioned rooms, but is lived on the ground is really important. Um, Tabo, do you want to add anything there? Yeah, you know, the just um, energy transition, it's actually um, something else in in our communities, or I would say in the communities that I've visited. Remember, these the people that we are talking about we are, even though the, the, the green energy is going to be, uh, for the whole country and whoever that's going to benefit from it, it's fine. But remember, now when we are talking about the transition, the transition includes, uh, a lot of things. Uh, first of all, it includes the decommissioning of those coal-fired power plants. And where are those coal-fired power plants? They are in the communities. Mm-hmm. And who works there? These are the, it's the people who are in the, in the communities and either a formal or informal business, but somehow they are benefiting from those coal fired power stations. 
And now uh, you come and you tell them about the just energy transition, but then you don't have plans on how are they going to, to benefit from it and how are they going to survive if tomorrow a certain power station was going to be decommissioned. That's where the problem is. It's the lack of uh, messaging to, to the people because from where they stand, what they know is that the transition is going to mess up their lives. So they honestly don't want it. And you find that this is actually not the case. It's just that the people, they are not being educated enough. There's not enough awareness programs from the government or from the um, PCC itself. And by and the PCC, you mean the Presidential Climate Commission? Exactly. Mm. And um, recently I've spoken to the to the PCC about this they do realize that there hasn't been uh, so much maybe awareness on the ground. And one of their problems is that um, the, the decommissioning plan or the energy transition plan is actually um, not going according to the way it's supposed to go. Why are they saying this? Because uh, one of their, one of their um, experts that I was talking to, he say the problem is that we are decommissioning now or we are transitioning now and we do have plans of actually um uh, trying to 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 get uh, maybe new jobs for people and all that so that people are not affected by the transition mm -hmm. but the problem is that all those things are not happening now Right. What we see now is the negative impact of the of the transition, the losing of jobs. But people are not getting jobs now. Yeah. The plans to actually uh, cater for people are happening in about five or six years' time from now. Right. So the problem is that how are we tackling the problems that we are facing now uh, that are uh, that are the results of the just energy transition. That is the problems that I think the government and the PCC should face, uh, should, 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 should take on because at our communities, if you live in South Africa, you must know that, um, once South Africans say we don't want this thing, uh, I'm telling you, it will not succeed, mm. but we are trying as much that, um, we are giving them good messages so that uh, the transition happens because we need it because we have some kind of uh, um, uh, abnormal load shedding in South Africa. Mm -hmm. So we do need that, but then these people who are benefiting from the qualified power stations, these communities mm -hmm. who reside in those uh, communities that are affected by the by, by the transition, need to be catered for and more education and awareness must go to them uh, rather than as Andiswa mentioned taking this to the uh, certain conference rooms and have a room full of experts and that and obviously this is what we are going to see at uh, at COP28 you won't see an ordinary person from the from the from the communities mm. but you will see experts and um all your big names there nice. discussing the issues that are affecting the communities that they don't live in so that is our problem yeah thank you for that and by cop 28 that's the big un climate conference that's happening this year the 28th annual version of it um and i think this is really interesting the the point you're making about how the benefits of the just transition in terms of the programs that are needed to help people seem to be coming after the decommissioning, which should have been the other way around. People should be seeing the benefits of the transition and then maybe the negatives come after once people have 
you know, alternative livelihoods once some of those positives are coming. And that seems like an equation for firstly an unjust transition, but also an equation for, you know, people to get angry about the transition and resist it. And I think this is why so many civil society organizations have been trying to push the government for years to implement these projects. But there has been a big gap in that implementation um, and a big delay. And so now we're kind of faced with this this situation where we're transitioning, but we haven't got the proper just transition measures in place. And one of the things, one of your articles um, details a big element of that, which is a, a skills gap, right? So already in South Africa, we've got a context of deep unemployment, poverty, and inequality. And so how do we get people into this new economy? We need to give them the skills that are needed to transition to the renewable energy future or into other alternative economic sectors. Could maybe one of you speak to like what does that skills gap look like in the Mpumalanga context, and what are you you seeing from from the reporting on the ground there? Okay, I think the skills gap it's also one of the of of the big issues because now we are talking about the people who are already in the industry. Uh, some have just joined from the universities, and uh, the skills gap it's a it's a long chain. Uh, it includes uh, a lot of education. And now, um, if we talk about the people who are already in the industry, uh, ESCOM is all, is talking about uh, retraining people and all that. Okay, that's fine. The recent um, event I, attend, I attended at ESCOM, they showed me their plans and uh, that they are, stu- they are studying with um, education of um uh, the, the workers and surrounding communities, that's fine. But how many people are benefiting from that? The skills gap in the transition, it's very, very big. One of the experts I spoke to last year, he said to me, most of these jobs will come in the construction site. Mm. And you find that, and they won't last long because it will be something like three to four years. After that, the thing with these power stations are, uh, that 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 are coming in, uh, they can even be operated remotely. You can have some engineer somewhere in Spain operating the, the 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 power station in South Africa. You can have some one or two people stationed there in the in the in the power station. So the skills gap is something which is uh, very 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 important in mm. this uh, conversation because. We have people uh, who are on like simple skills, like forklift drivers, hmm. people who are driving cranes, uh, people who are um, uh, underground operators. The energy transition doesn't actually um, cater for those skills. Where are these people going to move to? So the skills gap, it's something which is, which needs to be uh, addressed. And at this, uh, at the moment, I would say, uh, it's not being addressed accordingly, even though in my last article, ESCOM has said they have, they have plans and they have already started with the training. But we are talking about a, a very big uh, industry mm-hmm. here and their goals are just near. You have uh, the 2030 goals, they have 2045. This is just um, something like tomorrow. And um, changing the education system it's something else because now if you uh, if you have someone who's doing metric now and the person is deciding to 
take on mining engineering or electrical engineering next year at university, these people are still going to get the uh, old skills that uh, are there in the in the education system. Mm -hmm. If we are talking about uh, TVET colleges, we still have people who are still going to be trained for being forklift drivers, people who are who are going to be trained for operating uh, cranes and all those other machines. So. Where are those people going after graduating if we are talking about um, uh, refining the skills? This is currently not happening and it's something that must be invested into and be addressed. Yeah, thanks for that, Tabo. I think that's really important is to think about, you know, we talk about reskilling and retraining and redeployment, but where are we redeploying people? I think one of the, the quotes in one of your articles comes from a researcher at TIPS who says that it's actually quite unrealistic to expect all the coal workers to then move into the renewable sector, particularly just like the the um, installment of renewables, but that we need to look a lot more broadly at the broader supply chain around renewables, whether that's the mining of the, the critical minerals that are needed, that's the production of it, so that we're localizing a lot of the manufacture of renewables, because in theory, renewable energy can create more jobs than the coal sector. But then there's the question of, are we doing enough to localize those jobs? Are we doing enough to ensure that people who are employed in the old sector can move into this new sector? And it sounds like there is a major skills gap and there's a major need to invest to ensure that is the case. And we're not seeing that yet. So vitally important. And Lisa, do you want to add anything on that front? So. Just to add and to reiterate um, the quote on 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 the skills gap in in the industry, I'd say that a lot of the skills that exist in our mining communities or in the fossil fuel and coal sector are, are, are lower skills. So the people that are going to be hugely disadvantaged by this transition are people that are lower skilled or even unskilled people. And so whatever jobs that they are currently working or whatever sectors they're involved in now will not be immediately transferable to the renewable energy sector. Yeah. So it means that we have a lot of people that will need to put food on their tables and the jobs that they had have now become obsolete. So we're just now increasing mm. the, the unemployment numbers. We're increasing the poverty rates in already impoverished communities. And, and that's something that needs to be considered. So we shouldn't just be focusing on, on reskilling alone yeah. or people that actually have the skills, but also looking at um, other sectors outside of, uh, the immediate coal value chain that are also um, affected by this transition. Mm. Yeah, and and this makes me think a little bit about the fact that the um, the, the term just transition was developed by um, trade unions initially, and I think particularly in the South African context, uh, a lot of the trade unions envisaged it not just as this narrow transition from coal to renewables, but as like a, a broad, deep transformation of South Africa from like this unequal extractive economy to one that is grounded in social and ecological justice for some trade unions that's eco-socialism right and so that if we're just thinking about like okay we're going to move some workers from coal to renewables we've kind of lost the the transformative element that's required given how many people are falling through the cracks in south african society more broadly we need a much more ambitious and transformative project and part of that is of course ensuring that we're training people and giving them like jobs not just in renewables but across broad sectors and that might mean 
you know, pushing back against some of the austerity um, governance that's going on that doesn't provide opportunities for others. Um, and this kind of segues me into a question that I have um, related to your uh, to your investigation, because one part of your investigation is looking at the coal lobby, right? Uh, and there is this very powerful coal lobby. The coal industry in South Africa is is very strong. And across the world, the fossil fuel industry is an incredible force at resisting um, the, the needed transition to renewable energy. So I'm thinking about, you know, in your, um, in your reporting, how do you go about maybe distinguishing between maybe what's like legitimate resistance to the, the transition that's grounded in people's fears about maybe being left behind versus like what, how much of it is from, you know, a coal industry that wants to defend its profits, even if it's at the sake of the broader economy, people's health and the planet like how do you how do you distinguish those or maybe you can tell us a little bit more about what that coal lobby looks like and maybe how that's different from the the resistance that maybe local community members have so coal lobbying in south africa is also one of the things that um i would say they they have an impact of actually uh pushing back the energy transition but um the coal lobbying it's happening very strategically so uh, people won't even notice that whatever that is happening it's now uh it's now coal lobbying because when uh the the people in the coal industry are lobbying for coal they uh they, 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 their first entry point is the people in the in the communities because when you have support from the ordinary people and then it's easier to you to influence the policies um uh, in 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 the government so they 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 have um a wide range of network of people who are in the communities and who are lobbying the communities to say this is our call um our call is not going anywhere and this is how we make a living this is how we have been surviving if you are telling us about um the climate change uh uh effects from the uh from uh, i mean the fossil fuel uh effects like to the climate um i had someone who had said to me in december when i was in mlo that uh we've um we grew up in these uh conditions and i have never been sick uh because of the fossil fuels um uh in my in my life and what will make me sick now so uh, you see now that People are being brainwashed, uh, mm. because they, uh, the, 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 the big players are lobbying for coal to not being phased out. If you will, um, <clears throat> if you, you read the, um, recent publications, um, I, I saw somewhere where they say, um, the COP28 president is saying, let's not phase out coal, but let's phase down. And, and that that's actually president uh, is oil and gas um, CEO, just for context. Right? Eg yeah. Exactly. Yeah. That's why he is saying let's face down because he, he, he doesn't he doesn't want to, to, to face out because he's going to lose, by the way. Mm -hmm. So these big people, um, they have a network of people in their communities who are influencing our communities who are saying uh, if ever the coal is being phased out, 
remember that you people are going to lose your livelihoods you are going to lose your businesses uh, your your husbands your fathers your brothers are going to lose their jobs and um we as the mine again we are going to have to move away nobody's going to pour money into your local economy so uh, people believe those stories and that is how now um the you 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 end up having a group of people who are who are supporting you so you end up having uh, meetings in in the parliament in the government big meetings where now people have to discuss that how are we transitioning without phasing out coal how are we bringing in renewables without actually phasing out coal because this coal is important to some people mm. you understand now that uh it ends up being some Something like that of which um that means we'll end up not actually committing to 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 to, to paris agreement so um when we are uh, going back to our question to your question the simple answer is just that our coal lobby in south africa is something very big mm. and uh the, the 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 problem with um opposing it or challenging it is just that there is big players and powerful people included in it and those uh, powerful people are the people who have power to influence the authorities in the government yeah it's really interesting it it reminds me of a, a distinction that that i learned once between a grassroots group and an astroturf group now grassroots is a, a group that forms in communities and civil society people coming together to work on something um, from the ground up Whereas AstroTurf is this term for fake grass. It's like this plastic grass. And sometimes what happens is these industries will create these groups that look like they're grassroots groups, but they're actually funded by the industry. They seed um, these uh, misinformation and this language into the space um, to try and make it seem like there's, uh, you know, community resistance to these issues. I have in mind, actually, in South Africa, we have something called the Youth Economic Council, which was a, a group that was created at WITS. And the first event that they had after just a month of starting was to host Minister Montashe. Um, I don't know how they got the economic clout to do that. And ever since, they've just been following Man Minister Montashe around and defending him and defending his coal, very pro-coal rhetoric. Which also speaks to you know just how high up the support for coal is that our that our minister is pushing that. Um, so yeah, it's sometimes tricky to distinguish between who's like a legitimate grassroots group versus who's like planted by the industry to to push this sort of messaging forward. Um, yeah, and I think it also reminds me of a quote by one of our trade union partners, SAFTU, South African Federation of Trade Unions, who says that. You know, for workers, what they care about is not necessarily coal per se, but about their jobs and about the, the fact that they have livelihoods. And so it's the government's job to ensure a just transition is protecting those livelihoods, is protecting people, um, but not necessarily to protect coal. And so Minister Montasha said that, you know, the just transition is not happening for coal communities, but that's because the government has failed to deliver on it. And so I think we also need to point fingers to government failure on this front. Um, but maybe let me, let me transition um, from this point to starting to think a little bit about, uh, one of your stories was really interesting. It was talking about this uh, debate about privatization. There was a Mpumalanga um, business coalition that you wrote about who wants to buy up and repurpose old coal plants um, so can you tell us a little bit more about that? And also, the, I think there was some contention about whether this means privatization and some people were resisting privatization. 
Sure. So um, I'd say that uh, one of the investigations in this series, um, it came about in a very interesting way where I'd just caught wind of this different approach, which was being endorsed by the former CEO of ESCOM at the time, uh, together with um, a business coalition uh, called the Middleburg Chamber of Commerce, uh, which is based in Middleburg. And um, they were basically just putting their hands up to say that, listen, uh, we are a coalition of businesses around the area or around the region. We have an interest in seeing that um, we have energy with everything that's going on and the talks of the transition, the decommissioning of power plants. Uh, We just want to make sure that we keep the lights on because our businesses depend on that. And so they basically put up um, proposals to perhaps take over the Hendrina power station, which is uh, in Hendrina, just uh, a few kilometers outside of the town of Middleburg, which is a mining and farming town in the Bumalanga region. So um, Hendrina is next in line, obviously, uh, for decommissioning, according to the ESCOM decommissioning plans after Gomadi, which was decommissioned late last year. And with these plans um, next in line, uh, they were basically saying that look at Gomadi and how slow it's moving. And perhaps then what we should be looking at is having business coalitions take over um, these power stations, see how we can perhaps revamp uh, the activity in those power stations to make sure that we keep the power running. So when I caught wind of of this approach, uh, my initial question was on the issue of um, the existing infrastructure and the fact that we could possibly have stranded assets if we do not have a proper plan of what are we doing with these decommissioned power plants once we've closed them down and um, people are no longer working there. Are we repurposing in order to include renewable energy and make sure that there's still some activity? Or do they just become white elephants and the towns are left as ghost towns? Mm -hmm. So I guess one thing that we went into this um, investigation sort of like agreeing on in terms of the Chamber of Commerce or with the Chamber of Commerce was that um, we we don't want the assets to be stranded. We we don't want white elephants. Um, but then, what is the end goal? And I guess this is where now the contention around privatization comes in, especially with um, activists, because you look at people like the coal lobby and you'd sort of like say that businesses do form, even businesses that are outside of the immediate coal value chain do sometimes form part of the coal lobby because if they're working together hand in hand and they're ensuring that they have business, um, then they obviously wouldn't want to phase out coal. So um, the businesses are more interested in terms of business and keeping their business interests alive than they are on 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 just not having stranded assets and ensuring that um there's some sort of justness with this entire transition mm. so um it, it was an interesting one for me uh it's i think if you read the article you will also get an understanding that this is not to say that this is the route that they're taking 
they yeah. literally just putting their hands up as as one of the solutions but again as i've mentioned it it is a contentious issue because activists are wary of this and um mm. they worry that if such assets land in the hands of private business then they won't be as committed to transitioning and they won't be as committed to the justness of this entire change and perhaps mm coal might not be phased out as we are expecting yeah that's that's really interesting and um, particularly you know you mentioned that kumati there hasn't been the the delivery on the just transition at least you know there's a lot of delays in terms of the repurposing and the repowering in ways that could have um absorbed more of the workers and the community into that um so there is this sort of failure by government to deliver on a just transition and it seems like business is trying to step into that uh, gap but um you know business is driven by a different thing than uh, justice often they're driven by profits and so if we hand over big sectors of our energy sector and the transition over to them it's not clear that justice will be preserved in that and so will it be a just energy transition if business steps in where government's failing but if government's failing to deliver on the just energy transition then you know wh- how what is the way forward and i guess that's part of what's being grappled with in that context and this is part of what the business coalition is trying to um to figure out as well um but uh, i think there is certainly across our coalition a widespread wariness of privatization because of how it might impact things like affordability or the just transition um and so there's skepticism whether business necessarily have everyone's best interest at heart so maybe i can transition to a question here um because i think part of what we've been talking about in the just transition is you know i think there is for particularly in impumalanga a lot of fear about what a just transition might mean for them you know the the promises of justness and the transition are seem far away whereas the the threats and the worries seem a lot closer um but in your in your storytelling and maybe in what you've been thinking about in this just transition do you also see some positive possibilities some some opportunities that are developing in this space maybe things that give some people hope on the ground um yeah so what what does that look like is it is it mostly people worrying or is there also people that are excited and that are that are taking economic opportunity to to really embrace this transition i'd say for the most part um there's been a lot of fear and 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 negative emotions around the transition because people don't trust that they're going to benefit from it and they honestly believe that it will leave them more disadvantaged than they were with coal in the communities and um this is uh with the environmental impacts and health impacts of coal aside just looking at the job aspect of everything but from the most recent investigation which Tabo worked on i'd say that if the government could keep up the momentum that they working on now or they working with in terms of ramping things up at gomadi providing trainings um having breakdowns of the budget and people actually seeing that budget trickling down into their communities then they're moving in the right direction they are definitely going to instill some hope and confidence around the transition and they can get they can 
turn things around and actually lobby people to be for the transition because they now see that things are ramping up. There's more development because I think more than just uh, jobs, again, uh, people want to see development in their communities. They want to see change. And if those efforts are now focused in these communities that were somehow forgotten and a lot of the development was left up to these coal mines, perhaps um, as someone who's worked with mining affected communities a lot mm. with mine alert at Oxpackers, then I, I think people would start to trust the transition more. They'd start to trust the conversations that are happening. And from that momentum that's built, once we have people on the side of the government and on the side of the transition, then I think we definitely see um, a lot of positives coming out from that. But people need to see the change. So what's on paper needs to translate with what people are seeing on the ground and what they're actually benefiting from now and not mm. five years from now. Right. Yeah, so the, the just transition must be concrete and not just a promise of, of future benefits in a lot of ways. Um, Tabo, do you want to add anything there? Yeah, I think um, when it comes to the to the positive side, like from my recent story at Komati, I think the strategy uh, the, the the PCC came with of taking the conversation themselves to the communities, not inviting maybe a certain few community representatives mm -hmm. to somewhere in in Johannesburg or Sentin and let those people go and provide feedback to the to the people so what they did that event was open to the community community was allowed to go in there and ask questions to the people and what i liked is that every uh, people in the pcc every um people in the top seat of the pcc even in the government uh pravin was also there so that was um had a good thing because people got the chance to actually ask about um these things people got to ask about the decommissioning of the plant and how are they catered for and fortunate enough the the government told them and escom told them that you know what um we are already um trying as much as we can to train people from the the communities so obviously um anywhere where you need some training you need to apply they told them that no we are going to advertise and we are advertising in um next week they are next week they meant the week that we are on now mm -hmm. i'm still yet to check if they did advertise that's what they promised the community that we will advertise on how you are going to apply and already we have people who are going to train you mm -hmm. they are taking their trainers course in cape town so that actually it's something positive to the community that is what they want to hear you understand yeah. and um they've been talking about how they are going to also utilize some land that is um uh, uh that that is within komati to for, for for people to use like in terms of agriculture agricultural projects so i think this is this was one of the uh, most uh, positive events the PCC and the government have came up with. And mm. I think they should take it uh, to, to, to other communities where the community, uh, where there's uh, coal fired power stations. And they should do this more often because I think what made people happy is to see this government coming to them mm. and is to see the government leaving ESCOM premises 
going down to the communities to see the issues because they did leave the premises and they took us the media to go with them there and the community so i think if they can do that more often mm -hmm. that will bring something positive because people will be informed to say okay this is what is happening this is what the transitioning is is bringing to us but as of now uh besides komati other communities have visited uh you go to uh Whitbank, you go to to, to mlo they will tell you that um, we don't even know what you're talking about when mm. you're talking about um, a field visit from the PCC. So, yeah. Right. Yeah, I think it's really important. There's maybe some green shoots and some possibilities emerging out of the just transition. But for the, the large part, it seems like there hasn't been enough done to ensure not only that the just transition is real in people's lives, but they, that they even know what it is. And so I think this is where it falls both to us as civil society to be really advocating and pushing the government to deliver on a just transition so that we don't repeat what happened when gold declined in South Africa, where we had ghost towns um, all over the place, um, but that it's meaningfully just. But I think it's also, of course, something that, uh, that journalists are, are really important in, in terms of highlighting where those failures are, highlighting where the successes are. Um, but also bringing people's um, voices um, to the fore so that we can understand better what's going on the ground. And so maybe sort of a question that's more a reflection on your craft as uh, as journalists. So maybe how can climate and energy, energy journalism be used to, you know, really bring to the fore the, the grassroots voices, those that are on the front lines of this just transition? And how did you how did you work to ensure that in your investigation and maybe a related question is that, you know, these issues can often seem maybe quite removed and technical. So what are some of the challenges in bringing these stories sort of back down to earth and making them understandable? Firstly, I'd say I think with climate and energy journalism as a whole, you do find sometimes that there's a, a, a lot of disinformation or sometimes fear mongering mm. uh, with, with the work that's out there. Again, it's it's a lot of jargon that is um, very technical for people to understand. So hence you find that that opens up more room for misinformation. So what we definitely tried to do with this series of investigations was to go into the ground. So we're not just speaking to grassroots voices remotely or trying to get contacts from other contexts, but we're going into these communities. We're reporting um, directly on the ground. We're speaking to people. We are using multimedia as a way to make sure that uh, we're when it's not just some sort of like helicopter journalism, and we're actually on the ground speaking to the people. Uh, we're seeing what we're talking about. So it's not hearsay. It's not because a previous publication has reported on this. So we're just picking up that story and then running with it. But we're on the ground. Um, we're thinking of, of, of new ways of telling these stories. We're using video. We're using photos. We're visiting the communities. We're speaking to the activists and, and spending a few days on the ground. So I, I think for uh, an outlet like, like Oxpeckers, which is non-profit, a lot of the times, um, those things are costly. Uh, budget is, is, is an issue. So it was really great to have the support of the Pulitzer Center 
for this specific uh, investigation where they supported our travel. They supported um, all the logistics that allowed us to be in those communities and to report for a number of days and then to bring in other technical skills that we perhaps didn't have in-house, uh, where we now have videographers, we have photographers that are working with us. It, it just brings in a different element to the storytelling that we perhaps might not have had the opportunity to, to, to bring justice to had we just used our usual model of, of, of writing stories and doing investigations at Oxpackers. So I'd say being on the ground, listening to the voices and using what we have at our disposal to highlight those voices is what makes um, climate journalism a, a really life-changing um, element of, of, of journalism as a whole. Thank you, Andiswa. Yeah, really really important. Um, Tabo, over to you. Yeah, sure. I think um, it's very important to actually uh, for for, for media houses to invest more in uh, climate and energy uh, journalism because now we, and and, and the the tricky part of it is that it's a it's some kind of a reporting that includes a lot of people before you even go to the communities mm. you need to have um a people a person okay who, who can write very well you need to have a person who can be able to break down data you can you need to have a person who's very uh, who is a very good um uh, video journalist and you you need people who have a, a, an eye of of some kind of story ideas so those are things that are still within the newsroom and all those things they require um a, a lot of finances and uh there's a lot of uh, admin uh, going back and forth uh, during that and and from from there you take it to the communities and you 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 get um people's voices and you make sure that you you balance um your stories are not one sided even though that we know that uh the most of this transition lies within the hands of <clears throat> our government and the the, the 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 investors who are investing into into the transition mm-hmm. but at the end you need to balance because there's there's companies there was mining companies involved there's unions that are involved so in at oxpeckers we have tried in our in our three part series to actually bring each and every one that we see that this person is actually somehow affected by the transition. If you look at our stories, we do have unions, we do have researchers, we do have uh, ordinary people from the communities. We have some others who are uh, community representatives. We have coal lobbyists. We have uh, <clears throat> the government. We have the PCC. We have everybody. And that uh, required a lot of time and a lot of investment uh, mm-hmm. for, for for us to be able to, to be able to execute that. So it requires a lot of reading also. So I think um, for, for for journalists who are uh, reporting on energy and, and and climate as such, there's uh, quite a lot of reading that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. And you can't do this alone. You need to have people who are helping you to, to break down everything. As I've indicated to you when we started that at Oxpeckers, within the newsroom, we had um, everybody uh, that we needed in terms of making sure that a story is successful. A person with an eye for videos, 
a person with an an eye for data, a, a person who can be a, a, a write very well, mm-hmm. uh, people who can analyze information from people and put it down on paper. So yeah, um, that I think that's all that you need uh, as a journalist and also as media houses. Mm. Yeah, I think that's really important. Um, you know, the climate and energy story in a lot of ways is the the biggest and arguably one of the most important stories of our time. And there's so many facets to it and different people involved. And I do think that the investigative series that you folks have done is, is a really good example of looking at all those different voices and trying to understand the complexities. I would definitely recommend that folks go and, and read that uh, that series, and we will link it in the show notes of this podcast too. Um, but maybe I can start bringing this to a wrap by asking um, you if there's anything that people can do to either follow your work or maybe get involved or anything you'd recommend folks who are interested in this um, take a look at. Sure. So um, people can follow our websites, both our websites as Oxpackers and Climate Home News for more stories like these. So for localized stories in the African continent, um, especially in the Southern African region, you want to follow oxpackers.org. And then for these kinds of stories on a bigger and global scale, you can follow Climate Home News. And then we're also available on the socials. So Twitter, it's at O-X-C-I-E-J. And then Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube is Oxpackers Investigative Environmental Journalism. Instagram is at Oxpackers. And then we're new on TikTok as well. So it's Oxpackers underscore news. And Climate Home News is at Climate Home and also Instagram at Climate Home. I'd say that our work, sorry, our work is also occasionally republished by South, other South African media. So you can also catch the series um, on the Daily Maverick as well as the Mail and Guardian. Thank you for that. Uh, Tabo, do you want to add anything there in terms of how people can follow or get involved in the, in the work of a just energy transition? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, no, uh, Andy Sof said it all and has, she has given our social media pages and our website pages and also, yeah, as an, of course, we are, we are within these organizations and it's our work to put, um, the, anything related to the transition and climate out there. They can also, uh, follow our, our personal pages, by the way. I'm not sure what Andiswa is, but mine is at Molele198. Anything that Oxpackers puts out there or climate home news, I always re- retweet and, uh, uh, reference them, everything. So everything you will get on their page will also get on my personal page. So I think I've made sure that that is my work. And even if it's something that, um, is not within our organization, as long as it is something that has to do with educating our people in terms of uh, climate and energy. I also put it out on my on my social media pages. Unfortunately, I only have one social media page, which is Twitter. <laughs> Alrighty, thanks for doing the good work of sharing that on on social media. Mm-hmm. And I believe on this one, I've got yours in front of me. It's at a n d e e underscore m a t. So if you wanted to follow on this one on Twitter, that's hers there. Fantastic. Well, maybe I can just end by saying uh, thanks to to both of you for the the very important report and work that you are doing on the ground. 
I think uh, unpacking the just energy transition, the challenges, the failures, the benefits and the possibilities is, is really important. And maybe I can also end with a bit of a call to the arms to, to everybody who listens to this podcast that, you know, in order for the just transition to be truly just, we need to push and we need to advocate and we need to be on the ground struggling to ensure that people are not left behind. And so... I hope that you will join us and then the Climate Justice Coalition ensuring that the transition is truly a just one. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Just Us and the Climate, a production of the Climate Justice Coalition. To find out more about the coalition and our work to advance climate justice, visit climatejusticecoalition.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and share it widely. The more people it reaches, the more we can help grow the movement for climate justice. This podcast is made possible thanks to the financial support of the Open Society Foundation. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.